بسم اللہ الرحمن الرحیم السلام علیکم و رحمۃ اللہ وبرکاتہ پیس اینڈ بلیسنگز آف اللہ بی اپون یو آل ویلکم ٹو انادر ایپیسوڈ آف دی بریکفسٹ شو ہے آن دا وائس آف اسلام ریڈیو سڈے از ون از اے دی تھرٹیتھ آف آگسٹ ٹوینٹی ٹوینٹی تھری ود And Nurdin Jahangir. Assalamu alaikum. How are you doing this morning? Wa alaikum. Assalamu Peace be upon you. I'm doing very well. Thank you very much. It's nice to be back in the studio again. That's good. That's good. Alhamdulillah. By the grace of God. Um, today in the, on, the, on the breakfast show, we're going to be talking about um, after the news um, sort of roundup, we're going to be talking about two main topics. The first topic, which is, is related to languages, right? How speaking different languages and how that actually affects our brain um you're you're, you're multilingual as well, <laughs> isn't it so i think that would be quite quite interesting um you know listening to listening to what you have to say on this as well but obviously we've got we've got a few guests that we're going to be speaking to uh some specialists um uh, and we're going we're going to get their two pieces on this uh as well um and also towards the latter part of the show we're going to be talking about psychological and also social factors Uh, which are needed to prevent and treat different sorts of different kinds of uh, diseases um you know s- you know sometimes you know is is the is the people that we're around is the is the social factors is the psychological factors as well which actually help um maintain our you know our our health in in a positive way in a good way and this is you know some sometimes needed alongside you know medical attention uh, as well but you know a little bit more about that uh, later on if you obviously if you want to contribute to the show the number to call in as always is 0208 687 7878 uh, and of course you can tweet us uh, at voice of islam uk as well i'm not sure if you can actually say that now um you know because of the change of the <laughs> of the name but still uh, voice at voice of islam uk you can that's our handle um What's happening around the news uh, before that um is summer holidays I've just uh, finished isn't it and I mean they're, about, they're yeah. literally just about to finish last week last week and then uh, back to school runs in the morning hey right? <laughs> I've actually <laughs> missed I've actually missed it <laughs> seriously yeah I've missed part of me has missed it yeah the routine and hmm. sometimes the kids need to need to need to <laughs> yeah that I, know, I know what you mean yeah what you mean the summer holiday sometimes can you know can get a bit you know a bit hectic yeah. when there's more than one child at home isn't it that's true yeah yeah that's yeah that's yeah Sometimes that's true. you need a bit of peace and quiet <laughs> just to reset <laughs> yeah i mean yeah and then well, you know when children go to school when they come back then they're a little bit a little because they've they've uh, drained themselves in school uh when they come home they're a little bit more relaxed as well yeah um so yeah i mean that part of me has missed it as well but you know the whole school run bit you know when you have to like, you know go <laughs> drop them off pick them up there's the whole traffic side yeah the responsibility <laughs> side it's because of the traffic mainly if there was no traffic then i, would, I literally wouldn't because i i have to take either my car or public transport maybe that's why my, I, yeah. i'm i i miss it more because for me it's walking distance it's walking so, distance. yeah so that's that's lucky my own time and yeah that's and that enjoy the walk yeah. that's a you know that's a, yeah if if i had that as well maybe my approach would be a little bit different but because i have to go through a lot of traffic traffic right? uh, yeah that's, killer, especially that, at that that's time the, yeah that's the killer that's the killer and then finding a parking spot as well finding a parking spot as well i mean uh, that's yeah absolutely i mean there's a lot of different things as well <laughs> related to that but yeah uh, last week so you guys who are in school enjoy it 
as long as you can because then the we can the you know then you're going to go into the next year and then start your start your school your next academic year as well um but i think a lot of people would be looking forward um you know maybe maybe to you know getting back into school as well because it is something you do you know if you have a long holiday you do enjoy it but you know you're sometimes you think what am i doing you're a little bit, you know you become too relaxed you become a little bit lazy getting back into school gets you back into the routine routine as well it's the same as going to an office um but still uh the weather as well the weather is looking a bit okay today and uh, there was a prediction or weather forecast that after the bank holiday which we just had we're going to have some uh some hot weather as well for a few days not sure how long that will last for obviously it's just a, it is just a prediction it is just a forecast which tends to <laughs> to to not be 100% accurate anyway but still we might we might see some hot weather in the coming uh, few days as well um what does it what does it say on the on the forecast yeah so today or well, at the moment it's 11 degrees celsius and there's That's highs right of now, tw- though, yeah highs of 20 and lows of 10 hmm. um it looks very clear um sunny with the um, very little chance of rain hmm. um but you know you know how the uk is likes to keep us on our toes yeah <laughs> keep us guessing but uh, yeah let's enjoy it let's enjoy it while it lasts let's um, enjoy it while yeah. it lasts absolutely um that's the that you know that's the weather um uh, what's going on what's going on around uh around the world and here in the uk as well a lot of uh, you know one um major thing which is uh, which is happening around the airports is that and air traffic control i'm sure that you know you you would you must have heard about this as well but air traffic control boss has said that he 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 can't reveal the cause of the glitch which has affected thousands of passengers but is not ruling out anything at this stage um so the chief executive of national air traffic services the nats said on tuesday which was yesterday evening an initial investigation had found the air traffic control failure was caused by flight data uh, received however he later told sky news that you will understand um we have very complex systems handling something in the region of 2 million flights a year and the safety of those passengers is incredibly important to us we are not going to rush into saying what you know what the cause is until we absolutely fully understand i mean you know, this is the reason why there's a lot of um delays uh, in airports isn't it yeah, thousands of people are stranded families are there just waiting waiting yeah and all the extra time they're spending thousands of pounds on the extra accommodation and yeah. people are running out of medicine um you know people have a uh, pets that they're having looked after so they have to yeah. s- spend extra days for that as well yeah So I mean it's it's uh, everyone's everyone's at a loss here and we don't really know the the real reason why hmm. they still haven't fully revealed it but um still, yeah still haven't fully revealed it and you know it, you know it's it, that is that's the last bit and maybe there maybe some people are thinking of going on a a small little holiday just to end the summer holidays yeah exactly and then but now it's a bit you know it's delayed <laughs> and then it's a bit it's just ruined isn't it yeah the daily mail's also gone gone with um, not a penny to compensate air chaos victims um hmm. as a french blunder is blamed um fury over lack of payouts for families so that's that's the other side to it as well that they're not being given anything no compensation for this either hmm. um so it's a shame as well that um just on top of the the whole inconvenience <laughs> they're also not getting their compensation out of it so yeah 
Um, so they they really need to get to the bottom of this and um, let the people really know what the true what the true yeah. reason is for it, so that they, at least they have some kind of clarity and some kind of understanding of why why it's happening to them. Yeah, I mean, hopefully, you know, it does uh, get resolved and the flights get up and running as well, and everything gets back to gets back to normal. Uh, but you know, like you said as well, everything everyone is at, is at a loss over here. So hopefully, it does uh, the situation does change and become better as well. Um, in some other news as well, the number of house and flat sales in the UK this year is said to be the lowest in a decade. This is this is according to new figures from a leading property website, Zoopla's monthly house price index, which tracks the number of homes sold subject to contract found levels were actually down a fifth so far compared to uh, 2022. And it forecasts that sales will be at lowest since 2012 by the end of the year, although it uh, still expected around 1 million um, completions to be made in 2023 as well. Um, the firm actually said, you know, Zoopla, that it highlights the deep impact of recent economic changes on the housing, uh, on the housing market. I think the whole mortgages uh, aspect of that was a big was a big factor. You know how yeah. mortgages all went up drastically, and people just just couldn't afford it anymore. Yeah. So with that uncertainty in the climate and the climate that we're in, um, I think that's put a lot of people off. Um, you know, delving there, mm. you know, especially into the world of buying houses again. Yeah, is it, or, and especially for those people who are buying the first sort of looking into first time buyers. First, first yeah. time buyers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, the Bank of England has raised the in- the interest rate so high. So for people to actually think about borrowing money is, you know, it's it's a no-no for them. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely, you know, they can't even think about it now, um, unless they're, you know, unless they're wealthy, rich, <laughs> they're minted. <laughs> unless if, unless if that's the case, then fine. But if not, if you're just you know, average or middle class, right? De- definitely not lower class, lower class. But they, they, it's, it's difficult for them to actually get into the housing market and property buying as well. Um, even even people who are remortgaging, you know, people are you know considering that as well because of the interest rates, and it's, it's you know it's a difficult situation for 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 everyone in this in this uh, in this regard. There's also the if you just um, might have heard how hmm. the you know Saudi Khan has finally he's um, expanded the Eula zone to yeah. all the London boroughs, and yeah. um, so that's been a big. Um, big, big part of the news, and a lot of the headlines uh, mention that as well. Yeah. Um, and it's time, for, and the, all protest, there's protesters outside of um, Downing Street as well. Mm. Um, you know, they're saying like how Saudi Khan is probably lying about the whole air pollution and everything, and they want him out. Um, so there's a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of backlash on that side as well. I've been hearing news about a lot of uh, van drivers, and you know, these um, the people who who rely on that transport as well, and the vans that they do have, yeah. they can't afford. They can't afford it. Something literally. yeah that will. Uh, I mean, I I know people who with uh, you know with vans they've literally gone up to the north, northern country, Midlands, right, mm. and had to sell their vans over there, and then they had to buy new ones over here as well, um, be, just because it's not Euless compliant. Yeah, and, and the grant that's being given yeah. to them is very low. You can't get anything. You for can't, that. literally can't get anything for that. It's. It's yeah. The situation that they they're in is it's not it's not nice, and to expand it to literally all of the London boroughs, I mean sometimes you wonder like a a a a, a borough which is literally in the suburbs, right of of London, they're still they're still Euler's in that as well, and you just think that you know if it's in central London or nearer nearer to central London, then fine in the city, but if it's in the suburbs, you think you know. 
why 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 over there and, i recently changed yeah. cars so i'm not worrying about it anymore yeah. <laughs> but oh, i do right. feel for all those who who yeah. are in the situation because i know it's not an easy process it's with, not, you know prices are going not, up as well so um it's, it's i know it's a very difficult situation especially for those who um, whose livelihoods depend on on the on the transport that they that they use for hmm. going in and out of london or out and about there's another there's another really um interesting um piece on the, in the times um, on the front page they 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 mention a survey that they did with the clergy of the church of england hmm. um and they say that britain isn't a christian nation any uh, anymore yeah um so the clergy themselves so they've um they've spoken to priests and you know different clergymen okay. um of the of the church in england and the majority of them have um expressed their the concern hmm. that um the church of england will not be able to stop this decline in in people attending church and they want to change according to the times um i think the they they want like for example there's a there's a big change in the attitudes and towards for example same sex marriage and towards mm. um um you know gay gay couples and that kind of stuff um yeah um, and majority of them now are starting to are leaning towards um allowing it and to and to basically um conform to the times if that makes sense yeah um so i mean we we've we've had surveys in the end of last year there was a survey as well saying how there was a decline in faith especially in christianity within the uk Mm. um so that was something which is which was a very um, very clear but to hear it from the clergymen themselves from the priests and the and the pastors and everyone that they're worried they you know they're very fearful of what will happen next um and how the church of england can, can also go extinct those are the words that they've used they can get extinct yeah, seriously so i mean that's pretty strong and harsh words as so. well yeah uh, but uh, so- sometimes you can actually i mean i wouldn't say um predict that but you can sort of see the trend as well because you see uh, a lot of churches are being abandoned as well and uh, a lot of a lot of churches are actually being shut down they're yeah. being or converted into, or something, converted else, into yeah. something else yeah. sold and converted into something else exactly and uh, you know sometimes then you begin to wonder that where are all the people where are all the christians when it comes to christmas and everyone you know and easter everyone becomes <laughs> you know very excited about it but you know that is a a christian a christian festival right a christian holiday but you know apart from that it's like the it's like people are not associating themselves with the with the church even once even once a week on sundays not that many people go to the go to the uh, the service on on sundays as well um but is it the is it that the 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 uk fine a lot of the you know a lot of the christians who were christians before they are not calling themselves or not practicing christianity not calling themselves christians so that the, so that now the uk is not a christian state or is it still a christian state but not that many people there's not that many christians left that's, uh, it's, that's I think the big it's, question as well it's, a, it's no longer a majority christian nation that's the, mm. that's the issue it's below 50% now mm. so the, the, it can't be deemed an outright Christian state anymore. Yeah, and at so the same secular, time, I think the word that you statement. use, practicing, is very important because there will still be millions of people out there who are born to Christian families. Yeah, and they might identify as Christian, but yeah. they but they no longer um, have an interest in practicing the faith. Hmm. And as you said, when the time the holiday time come round, there's, uh, there's Easter, there's yeah. you know there's um, Halloween, there's Christmas. Yeah, that's when you know you show like you know kind of because you gr- you've grown up in that atmosphere and you have these yeah. customs and these. And these festivals have been a big part of your life. 
that's when they um that's when they come out and they show that that, yeah. that that you know the christian side of them yeah. but at the same time i've spoken to many parents as well and um and i've asked them like things to do for example just just standard practice within christianity hmm. christian christening or or baptism yeah there's there's a big like um Decline i don't know like like do we do we do that or not because we don't really practice it ourselves so wouldn't it be a bit hypocritical if we oh, christian right. our children yeah. or if we if we ba- have them baptized so mm. even there there's like a so there's like a clash in their own minds like yeah. is it something like, what's the value of it if we don't even know we what it is like what it we is, don't yeah. even you know practice it ourselves what value do we have in actually doing these things for our children mm. and i've seen some parents who do it just because it's is this it's the custom that they they've grown up with mm. and i've seen some who have realized like you know we're not it would be hypocritical of us to do so because you know we don't practice it ourselves we don't mm. we don't associate anything with this to be honest so um we don't even go to church as you said in church like church goes yeah. declined so so much in the in recent literally, years literally um so i mean it's 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 a worrying situation and it's something that um they should find it, try to find a solution to i mean that's in i think it's generally it's a trend throughout all all religions at this time but, but within islam as well there's there will be some who who have stopped going as well but there's also a, a large because islam's actually on the increase hmm. there may also be more who are going to the mosques yeah the thing about the thing about uh, Islam as well is that because it's such a hands-on religion, right? I mean, during the day you have five daily prayers, isn't yeah. it? And you're you're told to come to the mosque yeah. um, for those for those five daily prayers. Yeah, it's like the hub. It's yeah. like literally, it's yeah. like the hub. I mean, you come to the mosque, you know, day you know, throughout in the day you come quite a few times, and you associate yourself with the mosque so much. And there's a lot of different things that happen in the mosque. It's not just once a week I mean yes we do have the Friday prayer which is obviously on Fridays which is once a week but we have daily prayers as well and we have other programs as well that's the thing if if a, if, if a nation or if a sort of if a religion only practices sort of once a week then if you miss one week you will become lazy for the next week as well and then you'll become lazy for the next week and then before you know it you will just disassociate yourself uh, with that so, I think that, that also yeah. shows how um Islam preaches how you know, just as the body needs nourishing, so does the soul. Exactly. And exactly. the soul, that that prayer and that that connection with God Almighty is the, is the is the water that feeds the plant of the soul. Hmm. And so, that the five times that you do come is even that is the bare minimum hmm. within Islam, right? They're, yeah, they're just the five literally. obligatory ones. Yeah. Whereas on top of that, there are many other yeah, many other, other forms prayers of prayers. Yeah. Exactly. And so, um, you know, it shows that just once a week, perhaps. And the trend which is being shown with the Christianity is is clear that um, is people are then moving away because you know you you're losing that connection you're losing that mm. um, that affinity to the to the place that you're going to yeah. to worship in and turn to ultimately to religion literally and so literally. you know those those steps have been put in place and I think the difference there is because within this this article as well in the Times the survey that they've done is that the words that they that I've um, that struck with me is like to get to be um in line with the times to conform to the times uh, like the the social norms at the mm. moment mm. that's something which christianity is doing and i think that that's up to a detriment to it because you can change chop and change your religion as much yeah. as you want yeah what value is there left and what principles have you actually mm. you know um, retained then, then islam doesn't do yeah. that yeah. islam it do, islam doesn't say that you should just chop and change your religion according to what people are thinking at the time the principles are everlasting and they you know they're eternal and we and we and we adhere to them in all times they they are teaching for all times they're not just for a specific time and and place 
Yeah, I mean, like you said, it's a, it is a universal religion as well, isn't it? And it's not just it's not just a religion. It's a, it's a way of life. Every single thing that you do, um, when when you wake up in the morning, too, when you go back to sleep at night time, every single thing that you do has got something to do with Islam. You wake up, there's a morning prayer. Yeah. You go to sleep, there's a there's a sleeping prayer as well. You you know you 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 eat something, you begin to eat something or drink something. There's a prayer for that. There's you know you drive your car, there's a prayer for that. <laughs> literally, there's literally every single thing. You wear new clothes, there's a prayer for that. Mm. Um, so there's literally every single thing, every aspect Islam has taught us from minute things to to big things as well. Um, so that's why Islam, as I mentioned before in the beginning, that Islam is a very hands-on religion. Everything with our lives is integrated um, to, to to the teachings of Islam as well. Um, I mean, obviously, there's so much more that we can actually talk about. Something which is, you know, I mean, it's, it's some people because a lot of people are not going to church yeah. and not, you know, practicing their religion as well. They say that. The stadium that they go to watch the football match—that is their church. I mean, it's a sad thing, but I've seen that. I've seen people say that, um, you know, in front of me as well. Some of my old friends, but just talking a little bit about that—they follow it more religiously. They follow than it more the, religiously than the, you know, the they, church. Yeah. <laughs> and then the manager is their is their priest. <laughs> it's it's a, I mean it's 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 hilarious, but you know it's it's true. What pe- some people actually they they're crazy. They're crazy crazy fans. The ultras, they, were, they call yeah, them, right? Literally, yeah, yeah. literally. Um, but just talking a little bit about, because obviously the season has started, the new season has started. What's your What's your predictions? Your Manchester United. Yeah, I mean, it pains me to say that Manchester are not there yet. They've still got a long way to go. You've seen from the first three matches, they mm. they've struggled. They did manage to come back three two win against a Nottingham Forest team. Yeah, th- that was pretty good though. It was it that was a good comeback, good. but it it's, good comeback. it's it's, a, it's an expected win to be honest. Um, I think the reality is Man City are still the ones to catch and um, Arsenal, are, they, they're still very strong but I don't think they'll make it the full short again. Liverpool may mm. come back. They're showing signs. Liverpool are showing yeah. signs, yeah. I think Chelsea's the, the the black horse here because with so many changes in the team, like yeah. they probably changed that 13 times. <laughs> they literally changed <laughs> that you so don't know, times, yeah. You don't know what will happen with them. They can either do very well with the new manager Pochettino and, uh, but he did also say he wants to win everything yeah <laughs> I'm not sure if you saw that but he, he said he wants to win the FA Cup he wants to win the Carabao Cup yeah. the the Premier League and they have they have this um, they have the history of winning these, these they do. cups I mean, as well even no the Champions doubt. League so so you never know you never yeah. know what they can do I mean Champions League they did win a few, couple of years ago isn't mm-hmm. it um, but still I, I personally think and it's interesting that you said uh, Manchester City as well but they have lost quite a few players as well. They, they always were, adapt. They lost Aguero, they got Haaland. <laughs> they, yeah. they lost... Uh, but, well, De Bruyne is injured as well. It's a big loss. They've always got someone... They've always found a way to get the results. That's the thing. They're but, results machines. Wasn't it just yesterday or the day before one of the one of the defenders or midfielders, Cancelo or one of them, they went to Barcelona as well. Cancelo is going there. Yeah, Cancelo yeah. is going there. Yeah. So they have lost uh, quite a few of the key players, but yeah, like you said, they do they do manage to adapt. They might be the favourites. They might be the favourites to win. But I think Liverpool do have a good chance as well this time, this season. Maybe they're going to come back. I also think Arsenal might stay in the top four. They'll definitely be top four. They're, they're, they're playing much four. better now, and they're you I know, mean they're they did refining draw, the team. They drew to Fulham on the weekend. 
That's a bit. That's a bit appalling. I think. <laughs> well, uh, well, Manchester United lost to Tottenham, so. That, <laughs> <laughs> that well, I mean. <laughs> Sorry, all Tottenham fans. Yeah, um, but yeah, let's. Uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, let's see. Let's see. I mean, season just started. Um, you know the the goats, they're doing pretty well as well. Um, 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 I mean Cristiano no. Ronaldo he scored a hat trick uh, a couple of couple of games ago. He got he got another two he in his last another, match. Yeah, he was about to get the third one, but he gave he gave the penalty away somebody else. Penalty he missed. And Messi is doing quite well as well in in Inter Miami uh, as well. <laughs> he won them the first trophy as well. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, so it's interesting. The season has just started. Uh, let's see. Let's see how it how it progresses uh, as well. Um, we're going to be taking a short break, and right after that, we'll get into our our first segment, which uh, we are going to be talking about uh, speaking different languages, how that actually affects our our brain. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you to call. We'll be back after a short break. <laughs> Hazrat Yusuf, on whom be peace, mentions God's favors by virtue of his attribute of Al Latif, the benignant by recalling how God was his friend, while his brothers conspired against him. According to the lexicon, Latif is a kind of gracious being, one who is benevolent to his creation, as well as one who is aware of all subtle and incomprehensible matters. A Latif is one who illuminates hearts, who makes arrangements for physical and spiritual nourishment, and who offers his friendship to his servants during times of tribulation. The promised Messiah on whom be peace said that sight, intellect, and consciousness cannot reach God. It is impossible to try and see him. He is al-latif. He is unseen and illuminates the person he reaches to such an extent that the person speaks for him, a divine honor mostly granted upon the prophets of God. God is the knower of all subtleties and is all aware. He is of those who seek him and raises prophets to be their guide to him. His light is manifested through his prophets as they spread the light of unity of God all around them. Among all the prophets of God, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, disseminated this light the most. For it was he who had the most perfect perception of God, and it was he who was completely imbued in the colors of God. In the current age, because of his perfect and complete devotion and subservience to the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, God has granted this distinct honor the promised Messiah, on whom be peace. It is the attribute of Al-Latif that makes God the friend of his servants in all trials 
and tribulations, just as the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, continuously prayed for the reformation of his ummah, as well as his opponents, as only Al-Latif can be the guidance and reformation. Al-Latif is the supporter of the victim, the voice of the oppressed. Al-Latif is that companion whose loyalty never fails to astound. It is he who fills hearts with his magnificent light. Then should we not be grateful for the mercy of Al-Latif? You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamu alaikum wa Peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome back to the breakfast show here on the Voice of Islam Radio. Um, as mentioned before, in this part of the show, we're talking about our, we're going into our first segment, which is about uh, speaking different languages um, affects our brain, or how does it how does it sort of uh, affect our brain? There's uh, there's an article um, which has said that uh, brains of Arab speakers are, are 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 different from people who speak other languages, which is quite interesting. And uh, this is because I mean this is what the article suggests as well. But they have said this because the Arab language requires listening comprehension and concentration between both people talking. Therefore, the the brain works a little bit differently. 3.4% of the world's population speak uh, speak Arabic and uh, scientists from the from the German Max uh, Planck Institute of uh, Cognitive and Brain Sciences headed by the the, the lead author of the research um Dr. Chui uh, who we conducted a study for the white matter of the of the brain between 47 Arab and 47 German-speaking people. And when, when speaking the Arab language, the connection is stronger between both hemispheres of the brain. And there's a strong connection between the lateral and middle parts of the brain that are used for the pronunciation and meaning of words and phrases of the, of the languages. That's, it's quite interesting, isn't it? 
that uh, how the how this study has uh, suggested that you know speaking different languages um you know you use your different parts of the brain but speaking arabic um their their brain works a little bit differently uh, what i found interesting was how you use both hemispheres of the brain when speaking arabic hmm. like i've i've understood what i've understood is that of course there are certain core brain regions involved um in processing all languages in general yeah yeah um but these regions they show distinct activation patterns um during the processing of different languages so i guess when you when you have understanding of more than one language then you you the activation of the, the you know the whole process of activation of different parts of the brain hmm. um happens more in those who um do speak more than one language with their bilingual or the multilingual um so that's something which is quite interesting and perhaps that suggests that um you have a, a more a vaster you know a wider um perspective on on different topics if you if hmm. you are um talking about them to people and you know you you're thinking about it in a different way as well yeah it kind yeah. of opens up more new avenues to it's true. to ponder over perhaps it's true and uh i've seen that with myself as well because when i speak urdu and when i speak english there's a little bit of a of a different sort of tone or a different uh, different mood or a different personality as well um even though it doesn't change drastically but sometimes and I've asked this to other people so they also think the same thing that when they speak one language their sort of um character is a little bit different and when they speak a different language they they sort of you know their mindset sort of changes a little bit as well um I mean we'll talk a little bit more uh, about this uh, as the show progresses as well but uh, let's speak to let's speak to our first guest Uh, who's on the who's on the line with us Thomas Back who was born and raised in Poland and uh, studied medicine and worked as a clinician in psych- psychiatry and neurology uh, in Bern Berlin Cambridge and also Edinburgh peace be upon you good morning and welcome to the show good morning thank, thank you. you very much for the invitation thank you so much for 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 accepting and joining us and speaking to us uh, and, and welcome on beautifully sunny day in edinburgh <laughs> which we don't have every day <laughs> i mean here in london as well it's uh, it's quite it's quite sunny as well <laughs> thank you thank you for that it is a good morning um just to begin with for the benefit of our listeners how does speaking more than one language uh, sort of affect our affect our brains well to start with i find that this question has a kind of problematic assumption in it namely which many people particularly in a very monolingual country like uk have and that is that so to say the normal human brain is monolingual and then you add something some strange people weird people speak modern languages then one language and then they have different brains i would say our brain is in principle multilingual and it is absolutely fine for every child for every brain to process more than one language mm. quite a lot of languages if we look across the world and if we look across the human history then we will find that multilingualism has been the usual case for most of the last you know 10000s of years and in most places in the world mm. and in fact in many places still whether it's india africa aboriginal australia and so on amazon people will speak three or four languages absolutely daily on daily basis so our brain is 
perfectly designed to cope with different languages. And if we speak only one, it simply means that we are not using our brain capacity to its full uh, ability because we can do more. So I would say that for me, the normal state of the human brain is multilingual and being monolingual is just a product of linguistic deprivation, of not being exposed to more than one language. Mm. So Thomas, that's very interesting because um, I guess what you're saying is that the brain does, is not changed. It's the same brain, it's just the capacity to which you're, you're using it. So, yeah. so the, que- the question I have then is, what is the difference in the brain activity um, between uh, you know, bilinguals and monolinguals? Well, you will find more activity and above all more connections in person who is multilingual and uses the languages. And it's in fact a very good question because our understanding of the brain changed very much in the kind of 30, 40 years I have been in this job. When I started working in this field in the 80s, late 80s, the uh, main idea was that the brain is a little bit like a chest of drawers. People spoke about so-called modules. So there was a module for this, a module for that, and they were all kind of independent of each other. And uh, in this model, uh, multilingualism was difficult to accommodate because then, well, do you add a module for every language or do you have a language module where you have different things inside? It kind of didn't really square up. Now, we see brain absolutely differently. We see brain as a giant network, as connections between things. So basically, whereas, let's say, 30 years ago, we spoke always about different areas, now we speak about networks. And if you think of a net, if you add one more thread to a net, it makes the net stronger and not weaker. So, If we then imagine that a multilingual brain is a brain which is better interconnected, it is in fact stronger and more resilient to damage. So whereas, let's say, 30 years ago, people thought that adding a language makes brain more vulnerable, it leads to confusion and so on, we would say it's exactly the opposite. And indeed, much of my research shows that people who speak more than one language have slower cognitive decline in aging, develop dementia several years later, four to five years later, and recover faster from diseases like stroke cognitively. So from this point of view, I would say uh, speaking different languages simply leads to a better interconnected brain, so a much richer network than in a person who speaks only one. Absolutely. Um, so the next question is something that I'm going to relate to as well. Um, it's something to do with like, um, the limitations and difficulties. Um, what are those possible limitations, difficulties facing those who are bilingual or multilingual? I specifically like... Um, you can answer this in general, but there's something which I face sometimes is when speaking another language, sometimes you're thinking in another one instead of that specific language, um, which kind of affects the usage of it. Um, but what are, the, what are the possible limitations and difficulties? Um, yeah, I, absolutely. I think that is an experience that everybody who speaks more than one language will have. Uh, and uh, basically, uh, I mean, there are some, so for instance, I can tell you if I show you a picture and then a word, and you have to say which, if the pair, pair of the picture and word is the same, 
a multilingual person does it slightly slower. It's a difference of maybe a couple of hundred milliseconds, so just a, you know, a small part of a second. But that's not surprising. I mean, if I have a big library, I will need more time to find a book than if I have only one book. So from this point of view, they are, they are so to say, there is this slowing, which is something measurable, but I would say all the other advantages by far outweigh it. So exactly the example you gave now, when people always say, well, but sometimes I think of a word in another language. Yes, that's right. But if you have only one language, you don't even imagine that there might be another way of expressing things because you know only one. And the point is, I think we also need to remember that you know, the idea that languages are just, so to say, different labels for the same products is a deeply wrong one. Languages are different ways of classifying, perceiving, and interpreting the world. And therefore, I think every multilingual uh, will have this experience that sometimes something is better expressed in one language and sometimes in the other. And it is not because we are confused. It is because languages are different. Mm-hmm. And in a way, I would say it's mm-hmm. an enriching experience for me. It is interesting. It is interesting. Doctor, what do you think about uh, you know teaching young children um, different languages as well. Sometimes, you know, parents, they speak one language at, at, at home with the children, but then obviously when they go to school, they speak a different language. Does that, is that, you know, do you think that's uh, difficult for the children to actually experience or learn because they're speaking one language with their parents? And in a different mm. language, it's a Yeah, well, thank you very much for the question. It's very close to my heart because I think it's also a source of great misunderstanding. So uh, for a long time, it was believed that, you know, speaking more than one language confuses children. They end up eagerly confused. They don't know where they belong. They don't know how to express they, uh, themselves. They don't know how to speak any language correctly. This is clearly wrong. I mean, to start with, as I said, for most of the human history, kids were speaking different languages and many cultures from America through Australia, I mean, through Africa to Australia, there was something called uh, linguistic exogamy, and that is that it was, so to say, taboo to marry someone speaking the same language. So kids grow, grew always up with two parents speaking different languages and grandparents mm. often speaking yet different ones. And they can do it without any problems. So from this point of view, the point is that they might be slightly slower sometimes in speaking, although even this mm. is, so to say, a question of research, because some kids which are multilingual are very, very fast in learning as well, both languages or, or even three languages. But it is absolutely not a problem. And a lot of studies shows, show, I mean, basically from... Yeah, already from 60s, 70s upwards, studies showing that uh, children which are exposed to more than one language tend to learn both languages better. Mm. And I can tell you, for instance, one example is if they learn to write both languages, mm. uh, in America, for instance, there were studies that English-speaking children that went to schools where they learned Spanish and English were better in English orthography. So it means not only did they learn a useful other language. It made them better in their own language. And that is something which has been beautifully described by a, uh, by a Russian psychologist, Vygotsky, beginning of 20th century, that basically being confronted with another language elevates our mind to a 
state, higher state where we realize the arbitrariness of words, the complexity of the words. So from this point of view, I would encourage parents always to speak the language that is their language in which they feel most comfortable with, which they love, which they uh, feel in and so on with their children, they will not, not only not have any problems at school because of that, they will have additional advantages. And just to finish, because I mentioned dementia and so on, I work with those uh, cases. I have now a lot of cases where people, when they are, uh, let's say, in the later life, when they're becoming old, mm. and some of them develop dementia, they go back to their first language. And if the children don't speak it, then you are in a situation where children and parents cannot communicate with each other. Mm, yeah, obviously you don't. Obviously you don't want that. Exactly. So from this point of view, I would say there is a long list of advantages of introducing uh, children to other languages, and practically no disadvantages. So I would say, if you speak other language, please try to teach it to your children. There is no worry. I mean, some people say, oh, but in that case, they will not learn English or German or French. I mean, whatever is the majority language. Mm. No, children will learn. The only way for children not to learn the majority language is to lock them up. Yeah. because then they don't have exposure. If children are playing with other kids, are exposed to that language, they will learn it. They don't have to learn it from uh, from their parents. They will learn it at school. They will learn it at the playground and so on. Mm. So I think speaking other languages at home is a great idea and I would very, very much recommend it. Thomas, you, you spoke about um, teaching our kids uh, more than one language. Um, this uh, just brought something to mind. How I've seen videos of children of very young age, seven years old, six years old, who are multilingual and they've learned like a good 10, 11, 12 languages mm. um, to a very high level. Um, and and what they say is that they can think in those languages as well, which is that's why it's so easy for them to switch between one and the other. So I just wanted to ask you, do you know the secret to this? How do, how do they do this? Well, I mean, the first thing is, I mean, is there a kind of limit for languages? I mean, for children, the limit is basically the number of hours that they are exposed to a language. So basically, if you hear a language just for 10 minutes or, you know, once a week, you will not learn it. And of course, a baby sleeps a lot of time. So that means that it's difficult to have, let's say, more than three or four languages in, in childhood. But yes, I mean, I am quite active, so to say, in a polyglot community in the world. And we have a lot of people who, you know, are relatively comfortable in definitely five or more and some of them 10 or more languages. And I would say, you know, for me, it sounds like a strange answer. But I'm often asked, you know, how do you learn languages? What is the uh, what is the, the secret? Do you have some methods and so on? I don't have a method. The best way of learning a language is to fall in love with it. And then everything comes automatically. So let's say if there is a language of my parents, you know, that this happens. The language of my mother was German, of my father was Polish, but they spoke only Polish with me exactly because there were so many, so many, uh, you know, prejudices against children learning more than one language. So I had to learn German later when I moved to Germany with 17. But I would say for me, of course, the Polish is the language of my father. So I love it like I loved my father. 
German is the language of my mother. Spanish happens to be the language of my daughter, who was born in Barcelona. So in a way, and now I, you know, I do Portuguese, which I love simply from the sounds and so on. So I think the most important bit is the kind of positive emotional attitude, because if you have it from this, all other things follow. Whereas if you hate what you are doing, you can have the best method, but you will still always suffer doing it, probably not be very successful, and at the end, end up hating it. Absolutely, absolutely. Thomas, uh, thank you so much for, for, for joining us and uh, speaking to us uh, this morning, telling us about the benefits uh, about uh, speaking different languages. It's been, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you well, so much. Well, it's my pleasure, and if it reassured some parents to give their language to their children, whether it's Urdu or Punjabi or Bengali or, or any other language or Arabic for that matter, mm. I would be more than happy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Thank you for that uh, okay. once again. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Very interesting uh, discussion with uh, Dr. Thomas back uh, over there as well and uh, re- re- reiterating, uh, you know, that uh, speaking in different languages is, is very, very important. It has this advantages as well uh, your your father was also known to, to speak a lot of languages as well isn't it yeah don't ask me how many <laughs> that's the first <laughs> question people ask yeah. how many does he know yeah I mean I, I do remember uh, you know the time of the fourth caliph um, fourth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community may Allah have mercy on him and how you know you know your father used to meet him on different uh, different meetings different occasion question answer sessions as well and he used to you know ask the question in English or sometimes in Urdu and then translate that into French or whatever other language as well. Quite interesting, quite interesting. Um, you, how many languages do you speak then? <laughs> uh, well, English is my most fluent. Yeah. Um, I grew up, I grew up um, with my father speaking French with me. Hmm. That's where I was born. Yeah. And um, Creole with my mother, who hmm. is from Mauritius. So it's a, it's a kind of a broken French. But um, yeah. if you hear it, a French speaker would, would be able to pick we'll up some pick words up. from it, but not not very much. But anyway, um, so there's those three, and then um, later on, as you and I know, we 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 went to Jamia together, mm. the Institute of Modern Theology, Modern Languages and Theology, mm. within our community. So I ended up learning Urdu and Arabic as well, mm. and having then married an Arab, um, so Arab mm. is a bit more prominent right. uh, than Urdu. <laughs> Urdu is still because I still work a lot with the in right, terms yeah, of my work, yeah, I translate a lot as well. Yeah. So there's they're both a bit more um, stronger now that I'd say than than perhaps my French even in my in my oh, career. Right. Yeah. Right, so your mother tongue is actually French, though. <sighs> when I mean, when we say mother difficult. tongue, yeah. it's like is it, is it's it what I what I when I was a child, I would say that was my mother tongue. But yeah. now I'd say my mother tongue is, is more English because it's English. all my interactions and mostly mm. with the people around me are mainly English. Yeah, interesting. I mean, that is that is still quite a few quite a few languages, though. Yeah, but I think what Thomas has said as well is very interesting. How, um, like, we all have the same, like. Hmm. What's to say? What's the word? Uh, capabilities, and we have the same abilities and the same, um, you know, potential. Yeah, I think that's the, that's the key word. That potential, like every brain has the potential to learn many languages. Hmm. It's about um, the exposure to it exactly. and falling in love with those languages. So, uh, yeah, that's what we need to perhaps work on. To you know. I mean, we'll we'll talk a little bit more about this uh, after the news, as the news is looming right now, and uh, we've got another guest that hopefully we'll speak to you as well.
You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome back to the breakfast show here on the Voice of Islam Radio. Uh, as mentioned before the break, uh, we are going to continue this topic for a little bit longer as well. As uh, we're going to be talking to uh, our next guest, Polly Barr, who is a lecturer at the School of uh, of uh, Psychological Science. Peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to the show, Polly. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for, for, for being here with us. Um, just to begin with, can you just tell us, uh, for the benefit of our listeners, uh, can you outline your role as a lecturer at the School of Psychological Science, please? Yeah, sure. So I work at the University of Bristol in the School of Psychology um, and I currently teach um, second year undergraduate statistics and I also teach a third year module um, looking at whether we can train the brain to do various things, including being bilingual um, and what effect this has on cognition throughout the lifespan, including preventing dementia. Hmm. So Polly, um, how, how do our brains cope with learning and speaking different languages? So this all depends on how you actually learn a second language. If you learn two languages from birth because your mum speaks Urdu and your dad speaks English, then you sort of automatically have two separate language stores that can be accessed completely independently of each other. Um, And depending who you're speaking to, your brain will pick up on subtle clues such as with this person in this space and this context, I usually only speak English to this person. So it tells the language area of your brain to inhibit or sort of suppress the Urdu language school. Um, to ensure that you don't accidentally speak an Urdu word to someone who wouldn't understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're bilingual, you'll notice that it's very rare to accidentally say a word from Urdu when you're speaking English and vice versa, um, like in this context with you and me. Um, but what's really interesting is that in the context when you um, can speak both languages, for example, if your mum is also bilingual, and um, you don't inhibit one language for the whole period, you are able to speak both languages interchangeably. And this is what we call language switching. When you start to speak a word in Urdu, but you use English words as well. Mm. Um, has this ever happened to you? Oh, plenty yeah. of times. <laughs> plenty <laughs> of times, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Polly, then the next question, I guess, is um, what are the most um, important cognitive benefits of being bilingual or, or multilingual even? Um, yeah, great. This is a really interesting question, actually, and one um, that we still don't have this kind of answer for yet. Um, 30 years ago, the general thinking was that it was a bit confusing for a child to learn two yeah. languages because there's some research that has found bilingual children start to speak a few months later than monolingual children. Um, so people thought that bilingual households should pick one language to speak to a child in. Um, we now know that this um, definitely is not what you should do. Um, potentially, there might be a little bit of delay in what age a bilingual child speaks, but um, for those listeners that have children, there's a massive variation in what age a child starts to speak anyway. Um, and what's really important to note is that the ability to converse with different people, particularly different family members, and the culture and the heritage that this brings um, is no contest for speaking you know, a few days earlier. Um, plus, um, there are potential um, cognitive advantages for speaking two languages. Um, what's really interesting is that some research has found bilinguals have a higher level of what we call cognitive control than monolinguals. Um, some researchers have found this in children, some in younger adults, and some in older adults. Um, however, also some research researchers have found that there's no difference between monolinguals and bilinguals. Um, although there just seem to be more consistent advantage actually in older adults. 
Um, and in fact, researchers have actually been debating this for 25 years, whether there are cognitive benefits of being bilingual or not. Um, and we still don't have a conclusive answer, but we now think we know why it's hard to reach an agreement. Um, historically, research on bilingualism has been conducted in analyses that compares two groups. So asks a group of monolinguals to do a task and averages their scores and reaction times to see if that's slower or faster to a similar group of bilinguals. But we now know that, that there's actually many differences between monolinguals and bilinguals aside from how many languages they speak. And in fact, um, you can even be bilingual in many different ways. Um, for example, someone who's moved from Pakistan at 20 to England and speaks English at work and English at home with their parents, um, husbands and children, um, and only speaks Urdu when they go when they ring home to speak to their parents, has a very different relationship with both languages than someone who lives in Barcelona and constantly switches between Spanish and Catalan all the time, or someone who's got um, bilingual parents and at home speaks both Urdu and English to them constantly. This is what we call dual language use, um, and therefore we now know that it's kind of wrong to compare monolinguals and bilinguals. And instead, we try to look at within groups of bilinguals and measure their bilingual characteristics, such as how often they language switch or how often they engage in dual language use. And we can use this to see if this predicts their level of cognitive control. And um, secondly, also, if there is a benefit of being bilingual, it's very, it's very small and it's only measured in very sort of specific tasks. And any difference we find usually amounts to about 20 or 50 milliseconds faster on cognitive tasks. So um, this, this sort of difference can be washed out when you bring in confounding factors, um, such as um, social economic status, diet, cultural activities. There are often um, other differences between monolinguals and bilinguals, aside from just how many languages they speak. Um, what this means is that depending on what country you collect data in, people um, that are bilingual are different from monolinguals in, in many different ways. Um, so it's really hard to see if the difference in cognitive control is due to the number of languages spoken, or if any of the difference is masked by the fact that monolinguals eat different food or have a less collectivist culture than bilinguals. Um, some studies have managed to actually remove this variance by including um, socioeconomic status or diet or culture as a variable in their research, which essentially removes any difference in cognition associated with these um, variables and just looks specifically at um, the difference in groups based on how many languages they speak. And sometimes these studies do actually manage to find a difference between monolinguals and bilinguals. Um, uh, but unfortunately, I don't have a definitive answer yet, but I'm hoping that um, if we can do more research with what I would call yeah. like true bilinguals, people who use both languages regularly, um, um, we can actually find out this once and for all. Um, but one, I think, important thing to note is that um, research has found quantitative benefits of being bilingual and no cognitive cognitive benefits but people have never ever found that there's a cognitive disadvantage of being bilingual and as I mentioned there are many other benefits of being bilingual aside from cognitive control earlier. So it's clear that even from the article that we were reading how um, you use different parts of your brain according there's different activations in the different parts of the brain when you do uh, understand more than one language because for example you have um, you'll have you'll understand a word differently and with, mm -hmm. with, with the many meanings that they that come with other languages as well then you'll understand uh, how you know how to use that word better. Or um, yeah. so my my question is then: um, Is there an optimal time for when you can start to learn a language for the monolinguals out there, or for for anyone who just wants to learn a new language? And is it is it ever too late? No, I don't think it's ever too late. I think um, I think it's it's great to learn a new language um, 
as I said, you, know, you get to learn about new culture whilst you're doing that. You get to learn lots of more nuanced stuff about specific languages. I think um, ideally earlier is better. Um, but as I said, you know, there are plenty of people that move at 30, at 40 to a new country and become fluent in that language. Um, so, yeah. The reason I asked is because um, we often hear how children, their brains are like sponges. When they're young, you can yeah. teach them something and they can learn it really quickly. Um, is that the case or is it something that um, that potential always remains um, even when you do get older? Yeah, de- definitely there is um, you know, a sort of a critical age of learning language. Um, you know, I think gen- general thinking is sort of before five um, to nine um, that you can sort of learn both languages fluently. But I think the real thing is about is about how you use these languages. So, you know, if you, you know, grew up bilingual, but then, as I said, you moved and you only ever use one language most of the time, you can sort of lose... Um, and that fluidity of using both languages and being fluent. But if all of your life you constantly use both languages, that's the most important thing, I think, to maintain um, being bilingual. Absolutely, absolutely. Polly, how does uh, bilingualism affect the onset and decline on mental disorders such as dementia? Yeah, great. So that's a really interesting question. I sort of alluded a bit to that earlier. Um, because the most consistent difference between monolinguals and bilinguals we have actually found is um, later in, in terms of cognition at least, is, is later in life. Um, bilinguals seem to get dementia on average up to five years later. Mm. Um, so one thing to note is that this doesn't mean that if you speak two languages and your partner only speaks one, that they will definitely get dementia five years earlier than you. What this means is that in a group of, say, a thousand people, some individuals, um, some bilingual individuals get dementia two years earlier than monolinguals and some will get it 10 years later. But if you average this all together, um, bilinguals seem to get dementia five years later than monolinguals. Um, it's actually a bit more nuanced than that, but I'm not sure we've got time to um, go into this. But what is really interesting about this work is that this seems to be true of regardless of what country you conduct this in, um, this, this research in. So. Um, I spoke earlier about um, how there are confounding variables such as diet and SES and culture. Hmm. Um, regardless of this effect, we find this across countries, which means it's more likely to be due to the number of languages that someone speaks. And the theory behind this is, um, it's a bit of what I was talking about earlier, is that um, at, when you're bilingual, all of your life you have to constantly inhibit one language to speak to the other. Um, so you've essentially sort of worked out your brain a lot more than a monolingual who doesn't have to do this extra inhibiting of languages. Um, so a bilingual brain is more resilient um, to decline than someone who hasn't, much like someone um, who's done exercise throughout all of their life and mm. is less likely to have a heart attack than um, when they're older than someone that hasn't done exercise. Yeah. Um, yeah. However, for us to truly notice effects of being bilingual is due to having a higher level of cognition from working out the brain. We need to find this cognitive advantage in bilingual younger adults as well and track this throughout a bilingual lifespan. Um, some people think the reason we can't find it in younger adults is because essentially when you're sort of 20 to 30, you're, you're at your peak of your cognition. So any additional benefits of being bilingual, um, they're, not, they're not sort of noticeable. And it's only when cognition declines, when you get older, that we can sort of measure, measure this benefit, um, which is why we need to develop more sensitive and, and better cognitive tests to measure cognition in younger adults and in these sort of real bilinguals that use both languages regularly, like I talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, so if anyone is interested in doing some research, um, feel free to contact me on my Bristol email address 
And I'm also doing lots of um, outreach events, for example, on the 8th of October in Barton Hill and Bristol. Um, I'm doing something with the Bristol Multi-Faith Forum, so get in, get in contact with them if you're interested in attending that. Um, and I'm really keen to do more outreach and talk to more people about my work. Um, so please get in contact if you're a school or another community group that would like to um, talk to more about my research. One final question, Polly. That's that's fantastic, and I'm sure that's um, a lot of people will be interested to do that once they've heard about it. Um, have your have your studies in- encouraged yourself to to learn more than one language? <laughs> and that's a really interesting question. I think I'm probably one of the few monolingual oh, um, no. <laughs> re- researchers that um, studied bilingual. Most most of my colleagues are actually bilingual. And um, I lived in Wales for seven years, so I did attempt um, to learn a bit of Welsh. Okay. <laughs> I guess that's something. There's something there, right? But you're not a dual lingual. You don't you don't use uh, use both, then do you? No, I'm not. I'm not a dual language bilingual. <laughs> definitely not. Well, thank you <laughs> very I wish much. I was. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, there's always time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. True. But thank you very much, Polly. It's uh, been a great honour to to have you here on the show and for for giving us more insight into this into this very interesting topic. Um, have a great, great morning, rest of your morning, and uh, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Bye. Bye. Yeah, very interesting, isn't it? Um, <laughs> listen, but, but I mean, listening to both of our guests uh, this morning as well, and uh, you know, talking about talking about the benefits of uh, of speaking more than more than one language. I mean, I think it is. I mean, like you said, it's it's never too late, isn't it? And you can always learn. I mean, you don't have to be fluent in a different language. You can always you know learn a few sentences here and there, get by if you want to go to a particular country. Um, you know, to be able to get here and there. And speak a, a few phrases. That's that's pretty good as well. Yeah, I think what Tom, Thomas uh, hit the nail on the head by saying you have to fall in love with the language. Yeah, fall in love with the language to be able yeah. to learn it properly. Um, that's true, and everything um, will come easy. Exactly. So when you put yourself in the deep end as well, then you realise that you, you know you can learn this, and uh, you mm. force yourself to to you know to, to that, into that exposure, mm. and you can, for example, learn a new language um, quite quickly. Um, yeah. It's all about how much we want to. It's the motivation that we it's have. True. Yeah. That's true. Absolutely true. Um, you, Talking about um, a little bit about the the Arabic language as well, yeah. the the promised Messiah upon uh, upon whom be peace, who is the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, he has written a book, um, the favors of uh, of the gracious God, yeah. Minan Rahman, and in that he has said that something which is quite interesting that the Arabic language is actually the mother. Of uh, of all languages as well. The reason why he said that one of the, one of the reasons why he said that is because the root words in Arabic, every single word in Arabic has it comes from a root word, and from those root words, it's mostly triliteral. So there's three sort of letters which make that root word, and then from that, you know the you know different uh, you know nouns and adjectives and different things verbs, they actually come from that particular from that particular root words, and uh, it's not just uh, used in Arabic, but other languages have also inculcated this, you know, the same sort of words into their own languages as well. And this is why the Promised Messiah upon whom be peace has also said that in every single language, there is some sort of uh, connection between the Arabic language as well. So this is, you know, quite quite interesting what he has mentioned. And uh, we can. And that t- can I think that ties well. in also with the um, with, with the with the survey. How what we're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. How the different parts of the brain are both hemispheres of the brain are activated when you speak in the Arabic language because of the richness mm. in in the meaning exactly. of the words. I think then you have a, a much greater understanding of the words that are being spoken in a in a particular conversation because, as I said, in English, um, for example, the heart 
It just means heart, right? Yeah. You don't really know. It isn't. It doesn't actually say anything. Deeper meaning. Yeah, to that. It a deeper meaning. Whereas in yeah. Arabic, the word qalb would uh, would point to the fact that there is a circulation within the body of where the blood is being pumped around the whole body, mm. and and when you have that understanding in your in your mind, when you say the word qalb, then mm. um, then then for example, that then it broadens your perspective on on the on the on the conversation, if that makes sense. Literally. So that kind of that kind of ties in with with what we're speaking about right now. Yeah. Having different aspects to, and from different languages, you learn different. Um, ways of saying things and different ways of understanding those those things as well. Mm. So this is you know this is why when you know we when, when we talk when we say that the, the Holy Quran was revealed in Arabic, there's there's a way to understand it as well. There's one way you can just read the translation and uh, you know you can understand that you can understand the Arabic text from the translation. But also, if you go into the the the, the deeper meanings of those root words. Then you will understand it from a whole different perspective exactly, as well, yeah. and this is why the when the second caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, as Mr. Bashir Mahmoud Ahmad, may Allah be pleased with him, when he wrote his sort of great um, commentary on the Holy Quran on various different chapters, then he actually you know, before actually giving the commentary, he actually spoke about the the the, the Arabic root words and uh, sort of the, the the meaning of those of those verbs. And those nouns which were used in that particular verse as well. So something interesting which he has also mentioned over there. We've got a brief audio clip that we want to play for you as well. It's an explanation on why the Holy Quran was actually revealed in Arabic. And His Holiness, the fourth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Ahmed, um, may Allah have mercy on him, um, spoke about or gave, a, gave an answer to that as well. So let's listen to that in right now. Why is the Holy Quran in Arabic? It had to be some language. And if it were not Arabic, you would ask the same question again. If it were in English, you would say, why is it in English? So this question is not valid. It had to be some language. Had it not. So whenever a language were to be chosen, you would say, why this language? But Arabic, of course, because it is the most perfect language. It is the mother of all tongues. It's most expressive for the type of subject which is discussed in religion or subjects which are discussed in religion. In the shortest possible words, it conveys uh, vast meanings and uh, it contains meanings in a sort of concentrated form. So because of this special ability of Arabic, to express more in less words, this language was chosen in particular. Hazrat Muslim has also spoken of other possible reasons. One particularly is that Hazrat Muslim has told us that this is the first language revealed by God. Man did not invent language by himself. He is one of the animals before he learned to speak. According to the Holy Quran, God taught man how to speak. So the first culture was born out of the first language which was taught to man by God. And as such, Hazrat Muslim was told by Allah that it was the Arabic which was the chosen language which God taught to human beings. So, because of its importance as such, because it's being the oldest language, because it's being the mother of all tongues, the book which was addressed to the whole of mankind, 
had to be in Arabic. Because Arabic once was the language of the entire mankind. No other language can boast of this. So that language which justifies to be chosen for address to the entire mankind has to be Arabic. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. That was His Holiness, the, the fourth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, very beautifully, very eloquently answering uh, a young child's question. I mean, a, a young child did ask that question, but I think everyone can actually benefit from from the Absolutely. answer that His Holiness gave as well. Um, so that actually draws a, a conclusion to, to this part of the show. We're going to be taking a very short break, and right after that, we'll get into our our next topic, which is also quite uh, quite interesting. Um and uh, it's about psychological and social factors needed to prevent and treat diseases. We've got a guest uh, that hopefully that we will be speaking to as well. But obviously, if you want to contribute to the show yourself, the number to call in is 0208-687-7878. We'll be back after a very short break. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Writings of the Promised Messiah, alayhi salam. Then arise and repent and win the pleasure of God through good works. Remember that the punishment of wrong beliefs is after death. Being a Hindu or a Christian or a Muslim will be determined on the day of judgment but a person who goes beyond the limit and wrongdoing transgression disobedience and vice is punished in this life such a one cannot escape God's chastisement so hasten to win God's pleasure and before the dreadful day arrives namely the day of intensity of the plague of which the prophets have warned make your peace with God he is very benevolent to the one moment of the repentance that melts the heart, he can forgive the sins spread over 70 years. Do not say that repentance is not accepted. Remember that you cannot be saved by your deeds. It is grace that saves and not deeds. Benevolent and merciful Lord, bestow thy grace upon all of us. We are thy servants and have fallen down upon thy threshold. Amen. وَلِلَّهِ الْأَسْمَاءُ الْحُسْنَى فَادْعُوهُ بِهَا يَا اللطيف حضرت يوسف عن هم بي پیس mentions God's favors by virtue of his attribute of Al-Latif, the benignant, by recalling how God was his friend, while his brothers conspired against him. According to the lexicon, Latif is a kind of gracious being, one who is benevolent to his creation, as well as one who is aware of all subtle 
and incomprehensible matters. A Latif is one who illuminates hearts, who makes arrangements for physical and spiritual nourishment, and who offers his friendship to his servants during times of tribulation. The promised Messiah on whom be peace said that sight, intellect, and consciousness cannot reach God. It is impossible to try and see Him. He is Al-Latif. He is unseen and illuminates the person He reaches to such an extent that the person speaks for Him, a divine honor mostly granted upon the prophets of God. God is the knower of all subtleties and is all aware. He is of those who seek Him and raises prophets to be their guide to Him. His light is manifested through His prophets as they spread the light of unity of God all around them. Among all the prophets of God, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon Him, disseminated this light the most for it was He who had the most perfect perception of God, and it was He who was completely imbued in the colors of God. In the current age, because of His perfect and complete devotion and subservience to the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon Him, God has granted this distinct honor to the promised Messiah, on whom be peace. It is the attribute of Al-Latif that makes God the friend of His servants in all trials and tribulations. Just as the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, continuously prayed for the reformation of his Ummah as well as his opponents, as only Al-Latif can be the guidance and reformation. Al-Latif is the supporter of the victim, the voice of the oppressed. Al-Latif is that companion whose loyalty never fails to astound. It is He who fills hearts with His magnificent light. Then should we not be grateful for the mercy of Al-Latif. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamu wa barakatuhu. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome back to the breakfast show here on the Voice of Islam Radio. Um, as mentioned, we're going to be talking about uh, our next topic, which is uh, psychological. Um, uh, well, a recent article claims that psychological and social factors 
are just as important as medicines to live longer and better because they are also needed to treat uh, diseases. Absolutely. And uh, it's, uh, it's interesting as well. So, I mean, sometimes people say that uh, laughter is the best medicine. I mean, it doesn't matter what, I mean, you may be going through, you know, a difficult time uh, physically, but, uh, or even mentally as well. But uh, if you, the people that are around you, the social sort of uh, interaction with one another, that can have a very, very positive impact on, uh, on, on someone. And also, sometimes, you know, sometimes people say that giving placebos is also quite effective as well. Absolutely. And, and the uh, mental, generally, yeah. generally the mental health has a big impact on the, on the physical health as well. It does, it does. So um, you hear about how prevention is, is better than cure. Yeah. And at the moment, um, what the article is... Um, is outlining is how the U.S. medical system is focusing solely, like so much, onto the um, the curing side, giving medicines for mm. um, prescribing medicines for for different illnesses, mm. whereas there is the lack of um, um, understanding and and focus on mm. actually um, getting down to the root of the problems and and, and those uh, those factors that, which are which are a lot of the times are psychological and social factors. But as it's, well. a, it's an eco- economical benefit for for them as well, though, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, it is. Uh, I mean, I mean, it's it's a it's a it's not a public sector of there, isn't it? It's uh, it's it's private. Yeah. Buying medicine, even buying paracetamol, um, you know, it's uh, um, aspirin, all these, uh, and insulin as well. It's so expensive over there. Over here, we can get it for for I mean, for dirt cheap compared to there. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, it's it's a big market as well. But yeah, you're right. It's something that we need to focus on and I mean the, what we do need to focus on more is uh, prevention to actually prevent something in the first and this is what Islam actually teaches as well with di- with different vices with different illnesses in terms of uh, spirituality Islam teaches to actually you know nip it in the bud before it even giving it even a chance to happen in the first place stopping it there and then but obviously, Islam gives the, the the cure, the remedy as well. If it does happen, then how to you know treat that uh, treat that particular thing? I as think well. they, they go hand in hand. That's, that's, go, that's, that's the hand thing. Hand like hand, um, yeah. you can't um, focus solely on one or the other. Mm. Um, both um, have their merit, and both have their their place in in society. And um, it's just about finding that balance and finding the yeah. the the prevent preventative measures, and also having those in place, and also having the cures in place when uh, when required. Now, Doctor Atia actually expresses um, uh, expresses the, the 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 fact that conventional medicine hasn't advanced much in uh, in the many many years since the uh, onset of age-related disorders, which is chronic you know chronic diseases. Yeah. Why, instead of trying to avoid illnesses or intervene early uh, early enough to their development to stop from the from progressing. Medicine has also placed more emphasis on treating health issues uh, once they arise. Um, so, you know, the treatment factor as well. So medicines um, present goal, or main goal is simply to actually expand our lifespans a few years as well. Um, but also, if we look into or consider those things which... Uh, um, you, you know, which prevent those illnesses in the first place, and it's, then it's something which is beneficial anyway. I mean, yesterday we, you know, on the on the drive time show on the Voice of Islam, we were speaking about the harmful effects of of alcohol. Alcohol, you know, an, an expert was you spoke to an expert, and they said that with drinking alcohol, excessive alcohol, um, you know, you can get 
over two hundred over you know over two hundred different types of cancers that you one can oh get. Goodness, and liver problems, kidney problems, you know, various different things, and ov- obviously. Those people who drink, they they most likely they will do other things as well. They might smoke cigarettes. They might try other things as well. So it's 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 become such a norm for the society um, to 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 drink, and there's so many disadvantages to that. Islam, like you know, like we said, that it nips it in the bud before it doesn't even give it a chance to happen because it's categorically forbidden to drink alcohol. And we're not allowed to do that. We're not I allowed think to drink that. That that's in, it ties exactly in line with what we're talking about right now because that's a social factor. Mm. Because um, I've asked some of my friends as well, non-Muslim friends, how, like, when they want to go out and have a good time, they they go out and drink. That's literally they yeah. go out and drink, and I and I and, the, and I think to myself, uh, or no, I, I ask them like, why? When you know that it can lead to so many problems, mm. and uh, you can end up saying things or doing things that you didn't want to do. Um, you know, so many accidents happen, car crashes, and everything happen because of because of drinking. Um, you know, there's so many um, disadvantages to it. Why do you do it? Mm. And it's just because it's what society does. That's what's taught us. Yeah. That's what that's what that's we true. do. That's how we yeah. that's how we that's you how know, let off steam. Yeah. Um, but in the end, um, that's so, this is what we're talking about right now. That those issues can all be resolved if you just um, think about the root the root causes and this and those social factors and the psychological because it has an effect on your psychology as well mm. um it's not just uh, like like you mentioned other things as well like smoking cigarettes and cannabis mm, yeah. they're big things as well they, they it's also shown that that has an effect on the brain functionality as well yeah, the longer does. that you do it um so you know, let's see today like um uh, you know how we can prevent we can live longer and prevent these uh, these issues from arising in the first place rather than just focusing mm. on you know what medicine can we now take and we don't want like nobody wants to live a life where they're just constantly like uh, on so many medicines. Yeah. I've seen I've yeah, seen people yeah. I've seen people who literally are like walking pharmacies, yeah. walking around with yeah, twenty different things they have to take every single day. Yeah, it's it's a, it's, a, it's a sad state that yeah. what people people are in, are in as well. Some there are some people though, you know who go to the other extreme, and they say you know there's no it's just all propaganda, and uh, you know they don't need medicines. Um, and all you, what, the only thing that you need to do is, you know, you need to eat healthy, you need to go out for exercise. And of course, those things are very, very important. But if someone needs to literally take medicine for, for you know, for the, for if they're diabetic or if, they're, if they've got, you know, epilepsy or whatever it may be, they need to take that medicine. For, for, the, for a person to just go, go, go and say, you know, don't take that medicine, just eat healthy and, you know, go outside for walks and that. That's you know that's that's the other extreme as well, and I think like you mentioned before, we need to find the balance between prevention and also um, you know curing as well. Um, let's speak to let's speak to our guest who's on the line with us, Jenny uh, Lipiat, who's a who's a, a professional and pra- um, uh, from professionals and practice program manager at Age UK. Age UK is a leading charity for older people. And they work across a range of areas to make sure that older people are actually supported and their voices are actually being heard. And uh, people are aware of the issues that impact older people as well. Jenny, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Hi, good morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, to begin with, for the benefit of our listeners, can you please inform um, our audience about your organisation and some of the things that you do? Sure. So you mentioned a few things there that we at Age UK do for older people, but we also run 
I work at the national organisation who run a range of services that might be an information and advice line that we have that covers a range of topics. We run a befriending service, but we also have a network of local partners who support older people in their communities. Um, I work in the health team where we work to make sure that the health and care system is the best that it can be for older people, as well as kind of supporting older people and their friends and families to look after and manage their own health as well. So Jenny, just diving into this topic, um, how do psychological factors affect um, physical health as opposed to mental health? Or is there any link between the two or what's the, what's the difference between them? So yeah, absolutely there's a link. You know, if we're not feeling our best mentally, then we don't always want to do the things you know that have an impact on our physical health so that could be exercise or physical activity that could be socializing you know generally looking after ourselves or our home and that can all have a knock-on effect on our physical health or for example you know if you already have um, a long-term condition that you're managing it may you may find it more difficult to do some of the things that help you manage that condition and that could be taking medication eating certain foods, not eating certain foods, or again, physical activity, for example. And if we're not doing those things that, that help us manage that condition, that can, you know, the symptoms can get worse or it can be harder to manage that condition. Um, and, and all these things can lead to things perhaps like weight gain or weight loss, sleep deprivation, weakened immune system, higher levels of kind of some of those um, habits that we know have an impact on our physical health like smoking for example that we know aren't good for our health and if we're not feeling good mentally or psychologically you know we can t partake in some of those behaviors that we know aren't you know aren't great for us so certainly there is a really strong link there and jenny um are there any serious or long-term diseases that can be prevented due to a good social life so, I mean, essentially, the you know the research that has been done has been around loneliness, right? So, yeah, and loneliness has been associated with a range of health conditions. So, increased blood pressure, reduced immunity levels, higher risk of conditions like a stroke or heart disease, diabetes, higher levels of chronic pain. You know, there's links with dementia as well, and it has you know been likened to having the same impact on our bodies as things like obesity, smoking and air pollution, all things that people understand have a, a big impact on, on you know, our health. Um, what I would say, you know, everyone is different and what works for some people socially doesn't work for others. People enjoy different levels and types of social interaction. However, I think what tends to be clear is that those that do have meaningful social connections, whatever that means for them, are happier and healthier. Um, you know, it can also, as you know, you know, it could lead to a decline in your mental health and can lead to, you know, mental health conditions in the extreme cases. Uh, Jenny, do you think that uh, you know, it's uh, if we if we make different lifestyle choices? such as uh, avoiding I intoxicants or various other things as well, in social gatherings, that can also be beneficial? I mean, certainly, you know, overconsumption of things like alcohol or mm -hmm. smoking does have an impact 
mm. on our physical health. That's well understood and well documented. Um, but, you know, that social interaction um, can be really important for people as well. And different people interact in such a range of different ways. Mm. Um, I think it's important to, you know, take stock and make sure that your social interactions are not, you know, impacting you negatively, whether that's from a health perspective or otherwise. Um, so certainly it's something to keep an eye on. Um, but what works for some people, you know, you know, is different for others. Mm-hmm. So Jenny, there's o- there's other factors also that um that, that crop to mind is that um for example, eating a lot of processed foods or even smoking because some estimates you know suggest that smoking can rob you of, of a decade of life. Mm. Um, you know, w- you know what is the what is your take on this and how can we like um really discern what what is good for us and what's not? Yeah. Certainly, you know, there's lots of measures in place to um, support people to stop smoking. You know, you know, there's political and government imposed kind of, you know, high taxes and messaging on cigarettes and things like that. And it is well understood that the impact that smoking can have on us, um, it doesn't mean that it's really easy to give up the habit it's an addictive habit um but if you do want to um reduce your smoking levels or give up entirely speak to people that can help you is what i would say so whether that that could be someone in your own life that can hold you accountable or there are programs available um to support people to stop smoking as well so certainly if that is something you would like to do go for it and um but but take the support that you need because it's not something that's easy and not something that can be done alone mm. one last thing um because in in your experience with the, with the charity you work in um what kind of things do you do to actually help people to um live a better life um to to overcome some of the the stresses and the and the and the, and the issues that they're facing in in the in their life especially as you mentioned those who reach an elder elderly age sure so i mean there's a as i mentioned kind of at the start there's a range of services that that we as the national charity but also our local partners provide and so if you are interested i'd uh recommend you know reaching out to your local educ or or the national organization but if we're thinking about um you know people and their social life for example we have befriending services which involves um, people giving you a phone call once a week and and having a chat and and seeing what's going on for you we also have a range of information and advice around such a range of topics whether that's health related or it could be benefits related or um, social care related Um, so if you are looking for information you know do come to us there's lots on our website or call our advice line um so we absolutely have a lot of information for people who are looking to um stay healthier or um and you know health has such a wide-ranging impact on our lives so it might be that you do need help with your finances to support you to make better choices or things like that so there's definitely support out there if you need it Jenny, thank you, thank you for that. But just before, just before you, just before you, yeah. you, know, you go, I just wanted to ask you another question as well. You, how do you sort of 
succeed in, 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 in motivating the general public to take more care of their social life as well, especially sort of those people, I mean, introverts, it might be a little bit difficult for them as well. Some mm-hmm. You mentioned before that people don't, obviously one of the things that people look into is that they don't want to be lonely and loneliness is one of mm. the major causes for, you know, for, for people to go into different avenues as well. But someone for someone who's an introvert and it's difficult for mm-hmm. them to sort of interact with other people, how do you sort of motivate them uh, as well to actually take care of their social life? Yeah. So certainly, as I, as I said earlier, what works for some people will not work for others. And I think what can often happen is if someone is feeling lonely or tells someone they're feeling lonely is they feel like, oh, let's surround them with people. Let's mm. take them to um, a lunch club. Let's, you know, in, you know, in extreme cases, let's put them in the care home or let's bring them into the family home, right. which absolutely might be the right answer for some people but you know loneliness doesn't um necessarily mean that or it you you may be surrounded by people and still feel lonely right so the the interactions need to be meaningful um and to have an impact so i think understanding why someone might feel lonely when they feel lonely how often is it a particular time of the day or the year or is it all the time? So those might be good questions to ask yourself if you're feeling lonely or ask the person if they've expressed to you that they're hmm. feeling lonely. And I think from that you can build up an understanding of what might then work for, for someone. And like you say, if someone's particularly introverted, um, it, you know, it might take a lot for someone to reach out. Or, um, But what I would say is... Um, expressing how you're feeling to someone is really important and if you're struggling and and wanting to improve or protect your social life it might just be that you you could build that around a hobby if you have a particular hobby it could be something um like reaching out to someone you haven't spoken to in a while Mm -hmm. but i i would challenge people to kind of think through some of the reasons why they might be or ask someone who they're worried about you know why understand a bit more about what exactly they are feeling as i've mentioned loneliness can have a big impact on your health and on your life so Mm. it shouldn't be something that's dismissed or um you know which can often happen so i think it is important to that people do take care of their social life but it needs to be in a way that works for them absolutely Jenny, thank you so much for joining us this morning and speaking to thank us. Thank you. I think it's, it's been an absolute pleasure. Me. Thank you. That was Jenny and, uh, you know, telling us a little bit more uh, about the s- social, uh, psychological uh, aspect to this as well and how we can sort of make sure that we can maintain a, a healthy lifestyle, healthy choices uh, uh, as well uh, throughout our life. Um, you know, the, the promised Messiah upon whom be peace, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, he has uh, said in in one of his books, The Philosophy of the Teachings of Islam, that as the soul is affected by physical conduct, in the same way, sometimes the soul affects the body. For instance, when a person experiences sorrow, his eyes become wet, and a person who feels happy smiles. So all our natural actions like eating, drinking, sleeping, walking, moving about, resting, bathing, etc., affects our spiritual condition. 
Our physical structure is related intimately to our total uh, to our total humanity. Now, the link between you know our our social behaviors and uh, our physical b- behaviors also has an effect on our spiritual behavior as well. Uh, obviously, you know if you're if you're if you're clean, you're wearing clean clothes. Your your surroundings is is clean. Naturally, your mind will also be you know clean as well. You have positive thoughts. If you're scruffy, you haven't taken a bath in 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 a week or God knows how long. If you're messy, your your eating style is a bit messy, and you you know naturally your 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 thought process will be a bit messy as well. So you know the the Holy Quran also tells us to. To, 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 to clean our clothes, clean our surroundings and with that our spirituality will also be enhanced and be clean as well, more cleaner, more purer as well. We've got a, another brief audio clip that we want to play for you as well where His Holiness uh, talks about, uh, or somebody actually asks His Holiness, if God already knows the general lifespan of a man, then how could prayers extend the life of uh, of the man as well, so it's very quite an interesting question. Let's listen to um, His Holiness uh, right here. In one of uh, the Friday sermons, where Hazur explained the word Qadir, uh, Hazur explained that uh, every creator, whether he has created machinery or whatever, knows the duration or life of that thing. Similarly, Almighty God, when created man. Uh, fixed life. Fixed life. Exactly. He uh, knows exactly the moment of start and the moment of uh, death. Yes. But uh, as we know, even in our own community, God Almighty has extended the life of people or persons through prayers. Exactly. But why don't you understand this? In the example which I quoted, uh, if you had this... Uh, Try to understand this phenomena, you could easily understand it from the example you take over. For instance, when a car is made, the general lifespan of that car can be predicted by the makers of the car. But under conditions, if you use it roughly, make a bad use of it, the car would last until that time. If you use it with care, the car's life would be extended to, to so many years. So it applies to every machinery, every creation. So the lifespan of human beings is also subject to their way of life for which they have options. And again, there are incidents where, when I said this, which means the inborn message for every creation, it does not relate to an arbitrary decree. What I mentioned was an inborn time of duration of a certain thing. That inborn time is not fixed in the sense that on such and such day, at such and such time, this thing must expire. There is an inner system, scientific system of that coded message. It says that this is the minimum and that is the maximum for the life, possible lifespan of this thing. And so many factors come into play then. So there is a lot of possibility of extension of periods of time or decrease of a period of time depending on the factors involved. 
again there are factors which are not inborn factors which are outside factors for instance accident if somebody is passing through a street within him that decree the qadr which has been written down by allah is that such a person has such uh, physique and such have such inherited and such you know in inherited values and good points and bad points so the possible life span would be from 50 years to 100 let's say 50 years to 70 and at the age of 30 he is crossing a street and he is hit by a car and dies that is a different phenomenon altogether under qadr when i mentioned this i mentioned this phenomena which we have been discussing not the other phenomena and yet there will be other phenomena also which will become involved for instance somebody gets a heart attack he may have that heart attack right in the hospital where the best surgeon is available or he may have this heart attack in the middle of an ocean traveling on a boat where no help whatsoever is available the result would be different so if somebody is praying for the life of such a person allah would so ordain that this accident if it is an inborn accident i mean decreed accident should took place should take place and, and where he is immediately provided all help and the life time extended i mean this is a very crude example but uh, many many things of similar nature so that was his holiness the the fourth caliph of the ahmadiyya muslim community has mirza tahir ahmed may allah have mercy on him to uh, telling us uh, the benefits uh, the benefits of uh, of prayers and how prayers can have a deep impact on our on our lives as well i mean that actually draws a conclusion to to today's show um anything that you would like to um conclude with we've got like about a minute <laughs> no, i mean like there's always, as i said like cuz we are the voice of islam so yes given uh, giving an islamic perspective is also very important and and you've already alluded to how um you know the, the outer has a big impact on the inner inner self as well exactly and exactly. so like the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah be upon him you know he mentioned how we should you know do our ablutions before Absolutely. every prayer and you know that that constant state of cleanliness or cleansing ourselves has a big impact on our on our inner self to keep ourselves pure on the outside and on the inside and in 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 a sense that also helps with um keeping our thoughts pure our mind pure yeah and in that sense that that helps with our social our social factors that are there they become purified as well and, absolutely. and we, we keep ourselves away from things which would which would uh, uh, bring those to detriment absolutely absolutely i mean that very well said and that actually draws a conclusion to our show today thank you so much for listening thank you for the guests the researchers and the producers until next time assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah